us pray. Great God, our Father, we thank you for your word because in it you have spoken, you've made yourself known, and you continue to do that by your spirit working with and through the word. You come and you confront people like us so that we would know you, so that we would know ourselves, so that we would know fellowship with you through Jesus Christ. And so, Father, as we open your word again, as we read it and consider uh, its significance and its meaning, we ask that you would use it powerfully in our lives. Use it to convert. Use it to grant repentance and faith. Use it to, to teach and instruct. Use it to encourage and comfort. Uh, Lord, use it as you alone have wisdom to know how to do. And we ask it in Christ's name. Amen. Uh, last week, we began uh, a new sermon series, and through the summer, we'll be looking at uh, the narrative of the Old Testament prophets Elijah and Elisha from uh, the books of First and Second Kings. Uh, next week, we will actually move into that narrative, into First Kings chapter 17. We see Elijah come on the scene. But today, uh, for one more uh, orientation or introduction to this series, we're actually going to look the account of the transfiguration of Jesus as it's recorded for us in Mark chapter 9, a text I think is a helpful introduction to this series. Uh, at this point in Mark's gospel, Jesus has begun to teach his disciples and others about his upcoming death and resurrection and the coming of his kingdom. And in order to help them understand what it means for him and for them, for the kingdom of God to come, he takes three of them, Peter, James, and John, and they walk together up a mountain where they not only see Jesus displayed in glory, but they see Moses and Elijah. And this is why I think it's helpful to look at this text at the beginning of our study of Elijah and Elisha, because it makes it clear that in the weeks ahead, the only way for us to understand rightly these men, these prophets, their lives, their ministries, what they said, what they did, is in the light of who Jesus is and what he came to do. And so the goal of this series of sermons on Elijah and Elisha isn't simply that we would look at Elijah and Elisha, but that in looking at their lives, we would look through them and beyond them to see the Lord Jesus Christ to whom they pointed. But what is it that we're supposed to see? What needs to capture our attention as we work through these Old Testament texts in the coming weeks? I think Mark 9, which we'll read in, in a moment together, is a sort of roadmap that will enable us over the weeks ahead to see uh, what we should see in Elijah and Elisha because it shows us how the prophets generally pointed to Christ and to the work God was doing in him. So let's uh, give our attention to this reading of God's word, Mark chapter 9, verses 2 through 13. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his clothes became radiant intensely white as no one on earth could bleach them. And there appeared to them Elijah with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. 
And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. For he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. And a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. And suddenly, looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them but Jesus only. And as they were coming down the mountain, he charged them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. So they kept the matter to themselves, questioning what this rising from the dead might mean. And they asked him, why do the scribes say that first Elijah must come? And he said to them, Elijah does come first to restore all things. And how is it written of the Son of Man that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt? But I tell you that Elijah has come, and they did to him whatever they pleased, as it is written of him. As we get into our study of Elijah and Elisha, as we prepare for that study, I want to suggest to you this morning from this text of Scripture that we need to see everything that, that Elijah and Elisha and the prophets did and everything they said uh, in light of two realities. Because all along the prophets worked and ministered and preached and did remarkable things for two reasons. To display, to put on display the glory that Jesus has and to put on display the salvation that Jesus brings. And that's, those are our two points today. The glory that Jesus has and the salvation that Jesus brings. So as we think about this glory that Jesus has that we see here in Mark chapter 9, I want to arrange that under three headings, the mountain, the metamorphosis, and the mistake. First, the mountain. Uh, you see Jesus with these three disciples, and he takes them up on a mountain. And Moses and Elijah are there, and I think if you're thinking about this text, if you're engaging with it, you ought to be asking, well, why them? Why Moses? Why Elijah? Of all the figures in history, of all the Old Testament characters who could have been there, why Moses and Elijah? What are they doing here? These are certainly two very key Old Testament figures, Moses representing the law, Elijah representing the prophets. But I think it's very important to recognize that Moses and Elijah in their lives had also had very significant mountaintop experiences with God. I think that's why they're here. In Exodus 24, we read that Moses went up on the mountain, Mount Sinai, and the cloud covered the mountain. The glory of the Lord dwelt on Mount Sinai, and the cloud covered it six days. And on the seventh day, he called to Moses out of the midst of the cloud. So Moses had experienced this before, the presence of God with him on top of the mountain. So we read a similar thing of Elijah, which we'll see in a couple of weeks in 1 Kings. God met with Elijah on the same mountain, Mount Horeb, another name for Mount Sinai. And God spoke with Elijah there, as he had done with Moses many years before. So Moses and Elijah, if you're asking, why are they here? What's the significance? 
Moses and Elijah each had the unique experience of hearing the voice of God and encountering the glory of God on the mountain, true, a true mountaintop experience. So when Jesus leads these disciples, these three, up a mountain, and then Moses and Elijah appear with him on top of the mountain, there's no doubt the stage is set for something significant to happen. This is where big stuff happens. And that's indeed what we, what we find, that Jesus has brought them here to give them a glimpse of his glory. So the mountain. And then there's the metamorphosis. Because as they're here on this mountaintop, and most scholars are agree that this is Mount Hermon. This is a mountain in the region of Galilee that was about 9,000 feet high. So when it says they walked up a mountain, don't imagine they're walking up a small hill. This is a long walk, and they walk for, I don't know how long it would take to walk up a 9,000-foot mountain. But they walk up this mountain, and Luke tells us that they went there in order to pray. And so they're praying together on the mountain, and Jesus prays, and Jesus prays, and he prays, and he prays. And Luke tells us the disciples get sleepy as he prays. But suddenly, as the disciples awoke, they saw Jesus, Mark tells us, transfigured before them, and his clothes become radiant, intensely white as no one on earth, literally as no fuller, old-fashioned word for uh, a launderer. There's no one on earth who could have bleached them this white, no professional who could have done this. Now think about the connections here. We've got Moses. Moses had reflected the glory of God on top of the mountain. In fact, we read in Exodus 24 and later in the account of Exodus, and Paul refers to this in 2 Corinthians 3, that as Moses comes back into the presence of Israel, you remember what it tells us about his face? It shone. Why? Because he was reflecting the glory of God that he had encountered. Well, here's Jesus on the mountain, and here's Moses, and the glory of God has come down, but here's the difference. Jesus isn't reflecting glory. Jesus is radiating glory. The glory is his. He's not reflecting the glory of another. He's emanating. He's radiating the glory that is his possession. And it shines so brightly out from him that his clothes radiate with such an intense brightness that they can't even bear to look. Jesus was transfigured. Literally, the word that is used, he was metamorphosed. Metamorphosis. He was changed. His appearance was altered as his glory was seen. Now this is significant in Mark because up to this point, Jesus' glory has been hidden from view. He came in weakness and lowliness. He's a man of sorrows, acquainted with suffering and grief. But here, for a short time, the veil is removed. The veil is pulled back. And the glory of Jesus breaks through. It's as if the Lord is saying to his disciples, if you are going to make it, as my disciples in this world, you need to know who I really am. And this is powerfully highlighted when the voice of God the Father comes from the cloud. Again, as God spoke audibly to Moses and to Elijah on the mountain, now the voice of God again comes in the cloud as they're enveloped in this thick presence of the glory of God. And the voice comes out. This is my son, the beloved one. Listen to him. Listen to him. 
We saw last week in Deuteronomy 18, God had promised to raise up a prophet greater than Moses, someone who would speak God's word, someone to whom the people of Israel would listen. That was God's promise. And here, he says, this is my son. God's saying, this is the one. The the prophet I'm sending, the prophet I've promised you, is my own son. He has my blessing. I have raised him up from among you, from among the people of Israel. Do you see how glorious he is? Listen to him. You may remember that this happened at the beginning of Jesus' earthly ministry as well, as he was in the Jordan River being baptized by John the Baptist. And the Father's voice comes from heaven, and the Spirit descends on him in the form of a dove. At that time, Jesus was being equipped with everything he needed for his ministry that he was about to commence in this world. And here, now, on the mountain, the same thing happens. The the Father envelops the Son with his presence, the light, the cloud of glory, the voice from heaven to strengthen him. This is what God is doing. It's not only for the benefit of the disciples, it's for Jesus, too, to strengthen him for the even greater task that lies ahead of him, which is his death on the cross. And so the disciples get a glimpse of Jesus' infinite glory. Can you imagine? They get a visible glimpse of his infinite glory. And yet, Jesus continues to talk about his suffering and his death and his resurrection. And for his disciples, the cross-bearing that is going to characterize their lives. And this juxtaposition of glory and suffering has them all confused and causes them, and Peter, once again, is the spokesman, to make a, a serious mistake. So you've got the mountain, you've got the metamorphosis, and then this mistake. You notice what Peter said on the mountain? Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, It seems odd that if you're going to see the radiant, intense glory of Jesus Christ, you would just call him teacher. But that's what he says, teacher. It is good that we are here. (laughs) Okay. Uh, I have an idea. Let's make three tents. Let's make three little tabernacles. There'll be plenty of room for you and for Moses and for Elijah. We can hang out. This is a pretty hot, this is a mountaintop experience. We want to stay. Why would we want to go back down there? There's people sick and demons, and this is good. Let's stay here. And they ask about Elijah again on the way down the mountain, not understanding the things they've seen. Oh, Lord, uh, the scribes say that uh, when Elijah comes, the kingdom is upon us. So why all the talk about death? Why, what, what does this rising from the dead mean? See, last week we saw in Deuteronomy 18 and 34 that the Old Testament prophets look forward to a greater prophet who's to come. We find in the scripture reading from today, the Old Testament reading in Malachi, that Elijah was a big part of that expectation. There was a link between Elijah showing up and the kingdom of God coming with power. So what are they thinking? They're on this mountaintop. There's Jesus, there's Moses, there's Elijah. Well, there he is. So why do we need to talk about suffering? Why do we need to talk about death? Jesus, why rising from the dead? It's very similar to what Peter had just done with Jesus, saying, no, 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 there will be no suffering for you. We'll have the kingdom without the cross. And that's why Jesus rebukes Peter so strongly. Remember, get behind me, Satan. It's the same thing that we have here. 
the problem is that their concept of glory left no room for the cross. Jesus has been telling them about it, but they still don't get it, so he has to say it again. He says, yes, Elijah does come first to restore all things. And how is it written of the Son of Man that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt? But I tell you that Elijah has come, and they did to him whatever they pleased, as it is written of him. Here's what Matthew tells us in his account. He answered, Elijah does come, and he will restore all things. But I tell you that Elijah has already come, and they did not recognize him, but did to him whatever they pleased. So also the Son of Man will certainly suffer at their hands. Then the disciples understood, Matthew tells us, that he was speaking of John the Baptist. Jesus is saying, the Elijah that Malachi promised is not some reincarnated form of that Elijah. It's John the Baptist. And he has come. And he has preached a a message of repentance. He has prepared the way for me, the messenger of the Lord. And he suffered and died. He was killed. He's come, and now he's gone. He's done his work, and now he's gone. The prophecy wasn't about that Elijah back there. It was about another Elijah, John the Baptist. And then Jesus says it's written of the Son of Man that he must suffer many things. You see, Jesus is saying this. Just as John the Baptist's arrival was a precursor to Jesus' arrival, so John the Baptist's execution, remember he was beheaded by Herod, was a precursor of the execution of Jesus Christ. You see, he's saying the Son of Man is also the suffering servant. For Jesus' cross and glory are always linked. The disciples needed to learn that. You need to learn that. We need to learn that. That cross and glory are linked in our lives if we're going to follow Christ. And so we shouldn't be surprised when there's suffering in our lives. The presence of suffering should not be confused. You should not confuse the presence of suffering with the absence of the glory of God. In fact, God's way is to bring glory out of suffering. In fact, to display his glory in the midst of suffering. That's what he did with Jesus, and that's what he's doing with those who belong to Jesus. So what the disciples see on the mountain and what the prophets had been pointing to all along is the glory that Jesus has. That's what they were always leaning forward to. That's what all of history is moving to. That's what all of the Bible is about, the glory of Jesus Christ. But that glory, which we'll talk about again in a minute, is inseparably connected to the salvation that Jesus brings. The glory that he has is connected to the salvation that he brings. And we see that here in a very striking way, particularly in the conversation that the disciples overheard. So the glory that Jesus has, the salvation that Jesus brings. Look again at the text and see what's happening here in verse 4. There appeared to them, to the disciples... They saw them. They were suddenly there, Elijah and Moses. And what were they doing there? They were talking with Jesus. Moses and Elijah had been dead for hundreds of years, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years. Moses for something like 12 or 1300 years, I think, at this point. Elijah for maybe 900 years. Dead, long gone. And yet, supernaturally, miraculously, here they are, standing on the mountain, 
enveloped in this cloud of glory, talking with Jesus as the disciples look on, terrified. That's the word Mark gives us, terrified. Not interested, not, whoa, this is pretty, terrified. Terrified. Now, wouldn't you love to know what they were talking about? You know what? We actually do know what they were talking about. Because in Luke's account of this event, he tells us. Luke tells us this, that as they stood on the mountain talking, Moses and Elijah and Jesus, they spoke of his departure, that is, Jesus' departure, the word there is exodus, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. That's why Moses was there. So what are Moses and Elijah and Jesus talking about? What's the conversation that we would love to be clued in on? Well, we actually are clued in on it. They are talking about the exodus that Jesus is about to accomplish in Jerusalem. Now, we need to think about that. God had done great things through Moses, right? We, we saw in Deuteronomy 34, signs and wonders and mighty power and great deeds. All those things, nothing compared to what Jesus had come to do. Pale comparisons. Hints and shadows of the greater works that Jesus would come to accomplish. Jesus is teaching Moses. He's teaching Elijah. He's teaching the disciples. He's teaching us this morning. He had come to lead the exodus. To bring his people out of sin and death and into righteousness and life. But what had to happen? You remember the exodus? What had to happen in order for the exodus to take place? There was a Passover lamb that had to be slain. It was called a Passover lamb because through the shedding of that blood, the blood of that lamb and its spreading over the doorposts of the house of the Israelites, the angel of death would pass over. The judgment of God on sin would pass over them and they would be spared because they were covered by the sacrificial blood of the Passover lamb. This is why Jesus has come, he's telling them. This is why he's here. This is what the prophets have anticipated. He's come to be the Passover lamb, to die in our place, to make payment for our sins, to be raised from the dead, to conquer death and sin and Satan, and then to be exalted and crowned with the glory that was always rightfully his. And to do all of that for us and for our salvation, for our exodus. Well, in the account of each of these gospel writers, it's very interesting. You can look at Matthew 17, Mark 9, Luke 9. In each one of these accounts of the transfiguration, it's sandwiched between the hard realities of Christian discipleship on the one side and the hard realities of life in a fallen world on the other side. You see, just before they go up the mountain, Jesus has said, if anyone would come after me, he must, remember, lay down his life, and take up the cross, and follow me. Costly discipleship. And then they go up to the mountain, and they see the glory of Jesus. And then they go down the mountain, and you may remember what they immediately encounter is this poor, demon-possessed boy who no one can help. And they're surrounded again like this with unbelief, with misery, with suffering, with hardship, with uncertainty. 
the Lord knows, you see. The Lord knows that his awful death is approaching. And he knows that there is much suffering ahead for his disciples. So he takes them up there with him in order to minister to them. And as, as we open up this text this morning, and as you and I get to see this account of the transfiguration, the Lord is ministering to us through it. And here's how he's doing it. J.C. Ryle says the transfiguration was meant to teach the disciples that though their Lord was lowly and poor in appearance now, he would one day appear in such royal majesty as became the Son of God. It was meant to remind them that though reviled and persecuted now because they belong to Christ, they would one day be clothed with honor and be partakers of their master's glory. We are often tempted to give up Christ's service because of the cross and affliction which it entails. We see few with us and many against us. We find our names cast out as evil and all manner of evil said of us because we believe and love the gospel. No wonder that the faith of believers sometimes languishes and their eyes fail while they look for their hope. The vision of the Holy Mount is a gracious pledge that glorious things are in store for the people of God. Their crucified Savior shall come again in power and great glory. His saints shall all come with him and are in safe keeping until that happy day. And therefore, we may wait patiently. The vision of the glory of Jesus Christ and of the salvation that he brings, brings strength and stability and patience, because there is more, my friends, there is more than what you can see with your eyes. But one day what you will see with your eyes is if, you, if your trust is in him, the glory of Jesus Christ. Amidst the hard realities of life is the Mount of Transfiguration. And the event that occurred on that mountain speaks hope and peace and joy and comfort to all who seek to live by faith in the Lord Jesus. And despite your weakness and your weariness and your failures, continue to desire to serve and live for him. This speaks hope and comfort to you. And the fact is that the glory, just think about this, the glory that is at work in us as believers in Christ is even clearer and greater than the glory that Peter and the disciples saw on the mountain. If you're a Christian this morning, the glory that's at work in you is even greater than the glory that Peter and James and John saw because that glory has come to you. It's been implanted in you by Jesus who's no longer the suffering Savior but the exalted Lord. And it's that glory that's at work in you. This is what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 3, 18, and we all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. If you belong to Jesus, he's saying you are being, use that word from the transfiguration, you are being metamorphosed. You are being transfigured. You are being changed from within by the glory of Jesus Christ so that the glory that shone out from him is now at work in you, renewing you and changing you until the day when you appear with him 
in that glory, standing, as it were, in the glory cloud on the mountain of the Lord. That's what God is doing in the lives of his people. But we so easily lose sight of that, don't we? We see our weakness. We see our sin. We see our failure. We see uncertainty in the future. That was the struggle for Israel during the days of Elijah and Elisha, and it's our struggle too. We can't see what God is doing, and so we find ourselves, as Hal pointed out last week from 1 Kings 18, limping along between two opinions, as Elijah charged Israel with doing. One foot in the kingdom of God, one foot in the world, half-heartedly following Christ because our faith is weak. But we weren't made to live this way. God calls us to a life of complete allegiance and loyalty to him and to sustain us. He has shown us in his word that the Jesus we serve is a mighty and glorious and infinitely worthy Savior. That for him and for us, the path to glory runs through suffering and even deep darkness, even the valley of the shadow of death. But the transfiguration is a picture of what God is doing in you as you look to him in faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. If we lose our lives for Christ's sake, what will happen? We will find them. We'll gain our lives. In fact, God himself, God himself along with the whole world, will be our inheritance. And in the end, we'll stand together in the presence of Christ, not on Mount Hermon, but in the new heavens and the new earth and the glory of his presence forever and ever. And that means that in the present, in your life right now, whatever the circumstances, whatever things may befall you in this life, you can live in full confidence that the glory that awaits you is the glory that is already yours through fellowship in Christ. I want to leave us with this challenge. The Lord Jesus Christ is far more glorious than you think. Whatever you think of him, whoever you are, new Christian, old Christian, skeptic, unbeliever, the Lord Jesus Christ is far more glorious than you think. You and I have not even begun to realize how glorious and how magnificent he is. The disciples were terrified in his presence. Have you ever experienced that? I would say if you never find yourself in awe, in awe, in the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ. If you never experience that, then you are not dealing with him according to who he really is. Because the truth is, Jesus is even more glorious now than he was then on that mountain. He is even more glorious now. The brightness more intense. The authority more immense and universal, the power to save emphatically greater because then Jesus was still in his estate of humiliation. He was still on the way to the cross. But now, who is Jesus? He is the risen Christ. 
He has passed through his humiliation. He has been exalted at the right hand of God. And when he comes again to judge the living and the dead, he will come in such glory that the entire world will drop to its face in his presence. Either in trusting faith and worship or in doomed acknowledging fear. So let me ask you, friends, how are you responding to this glorious Christ today? Are you indifferent to him? Are you hostile to him? Are you dealing arrogantly with him? Are you trusting and loving and serving him, eager for his return? He is glorious. The salvation that he brings is great and it is sufficient for you. And he is glorious both as a fearful judge and a kind and gracious Savior. Bow down and worship to him today. I appeal to you, receive and rest upon Christ alone today. Do it today before you must stand before him as a judge. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the prophets, for the way in which they continued to point your people toward the coming Savior, the way they continued to warn and to challenge and to call out for repentance and for humility and for faith. We thank you that everything they anticipated and spoke of has arrived in Jesus Christ that he has brought your kingdom, that through his death and resurrection, life and salvation have been accomplished for your people. And we pray today that we would not harden our hearts, that we would have ears to hear and hearts soft to receive the announcement, this prophetic announcement of the gospel, that the glory of Christ and the salvation that comes through him. And so we pray as... In the coming weeks, we look at Elijah and Elisha and see and hear your work in and through them that you would continue to direct us to the great glory and majesty of our, of our King and Savior. In whose name we pray, amen. To ask uh, the elders to come forward.